This is episode number 94 with the founder of Dirty Dough Cookies, Bennett Maxwell. Welcome to the Path to Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Wes Barefoot, where it's my mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs and existing business owners take control of their lives and create freedom for themselves through business ownership. Each episode, I'll be exploring the strategies and tactics of other successful entrepreneurs that have created freedom in their own lives while sharing what I'm learning along my own path to freedom. I'm glad you're here. Let's drop in. What's up, everyone? Today, I've got Bennett Maxwell dropping in conversation. I was really looking forward to Bennett was introduced to me through a mutual acquaintance friend. Um, mentor to both of us eric van horn who's been on the podcast a couple of times eric is actually on the board of advisors with bennett's company dirty dough cookies so bennett is the founder of dirty dough cookies which has been one of the fastest growing franchises but specifically one of the fastest growing uh franchises in the kind of quick service uh dessert type category which is really blowing up within franchising if you watch that at all so awesome concept and awesome story here that that Bennett shares with us. I mean, we get into, you know, how he got into cookies, having no background in food, no background in franchise. And he also talks about, you know, a lot of what he's learned along the way to, to franchising this business. Um, they've gone on to sell a lot of units, but they're still very early into their evolution as a company. And, and Bennett explains how, you know, he was smart enough to realize that while he didn't have that experience as a franchisor yet he could surround himself with people that do it's where guys like eric van horn come in on board of advisors he talks about the ceo that he hired that's got an amazing track record uh with fran building franchise brands so really cool hearing bennett talk about how he has surrounded himself with these rock stars um he also talks a lot about the mission statement that uh he has with dirty dough cookies and how it goes far beyond uh, just cookies. Um, and I think it's a really cool message that he's found a way to to incorporate into the Dirty Dough brand. So all around, great episode. Bennett's an amazing guy. You can tell the passion that he has for what he's doing and the franchisees that uh, you know he's helping through Dirty Dough. So don't make, miss a second of this episode. Great stuff. Let's drop in with Bennett Maxwell. What's up, Path to Freedom listeners? Joined today by Bennett Maxwell. Bennett's someone I've been uh, lucky enough to get introduced to recently through a mutual acquaintance, um, Eric Van Horn, who's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, and I've been very excited to talk with Bennett and get to know more about his company, Dirty Dough Cookies. So with that, Bennett, thanks so much for dropping in here on the Path to Freedom podcast. How are you? I'm doing super good. Excited to be here. Yeah, man, I appreciate you making the time. It sounds like you're a pretty busy guy with with everything that that I know of that's happening with Dirty Dough Cookies. Um, and and I'm sure I only know, you know, bits and pieces of it. So for those 
listening that that are not yet familiar with Dirty Dough Cookies, give us kind of the high level overview. What is the business? Um, and then we we can backtrack from there and, and talk a little bit about how you got into it, how you got it to where it is today. Okay. Yeah. So Dirty Dough is a, a cookie franchise that was designed with the ability to rapidly scale it for both ourselves and franchisees to develop multi-unit, um, you know, as, as multi-unit franchisees. And to do that, it's all about simplicity and scalability. So we do mm-hmm. centralized production. We ship out pre-portioned uh, dough pucks to each of the franchisees. And then all they're doing is popping them in the oven. So very, very simple. We operate out of, you know, under a thousand square feet. And it's just a very, very simple model. So right now we just opened our first, our first store, our first franchise, I should say. Okay. Um, and anyways, so we have another four in the next four weeks that are opening, but we've sold nice around 90, um, wow. 90 something. Yeah. So it's, it's going. What, what time frame is that in that you sold the, the 90, approximately 90 franchises? So we're in, we just started July and it was December of uh, last year. So seven months, eight months. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's massive. That's very fast growth. Um, so why, why cookies? How did you get involved with dirty dough? Because I, I know a little bit of your, your background and, and your story. And, and I think it's fascinating. You don't, you don't have a background in franchising the way I understand it. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, literally zero background in food <laughs> or franchising when I got in the business. So my background is sales. I was doing uh, summer sales, door-to-door, pest control, alarms, satellite, whatever it was based on the year. And in early 2019, I was looking into Crumble because I'm like, this brand is cool. I like their yeah. cookies. I like what they're doing. I want a franchise. Um, but I didn't want to give up my income because I, I would go out. I had a pretty good job. I'd go out for a few months, four or five months in the summer, make multiple six figures, and I'd be done for the year. So I'm like, I want to supplement that you know add to it with the franchise yeah i don't want to give that up and crumble's model was you have to give that up you have to be a full-time operator uh, and they were sold out of utah already so and then i would also have to move out of state and i'm just like uh not really looking to do that yeah that's a, that's a lot of sacrifice you know even though you know from everything i hear crumble's a great a great franchise opportunity and for those listening that you know maybe art is as plugged into to franchising crumble is a we'll we'll call it similar. We're going to talk more mm-hmm. in more detail today about some of the big differences and and from what I know there are some distinct differences between what you've built at Dirty Dough and and a model like Crumble. But Crumble's probably been one of the fastest growing, you know, food franchise concepts over the last several years. They've gotten a lot of attention in the the franchising world and um seems like they're doing a lot of things well I, I don't claim to be super familiar with crumble but um so it sounds like that was the initial draw to to looking yeah, at at that, this that kind of concept and they were just so, sold so, out in your area they didn't have any any yeah, territory and, and, left and really they just started i mean they're still i think they started in november of 17 yeah so they're under five years old they're opening 70 locations this month not selling that they're opening this and month this month. Yeah. They, I just wow. saw that on their social media. I'm like, they're crushing it. They're, they're definitely leading from the front of like, this is what's possible out there. Um, they've done over a billion in sales in the last 12 months. And it's just like, they, they are, they, they are cruising. So 
Yeah, that got me interested. Um, but again, it just wasn't a good fit for what I was looking at. I didn't want to buy a job. That's what I viewed it as, which is great. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, Dirty Doe had started in Arizona State University by a guy that I went to high school with. He posts on ah. Facebook, hey, I need some money. I have a delivery only company out of my shitty ASU apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to open, he didn't tell me that at the time. Um, and anyways, that's another story, but um, I want to go into an actual retail storefront. So I gave him some money knowing like, well, I don't know anything about build out or anything like here's the money. Um, I can help you later on the road. Let's franchise it. And I can help you with franchise sales. So uh, I gave him the money because it was passive at the time. Then I moved to San Diego. I started a solar company in January of 2020 and Crumble opened up in the summer of, of 2020 and Point Loma in San Diego. Yeah. And it was, they were, they were crushing it. Lines out the door around the corner. And like, I went in there and I was recording it. And I was like, this is so cool. There's, but I also noticed it was, there, there, there was 18 people. I have a video and there's 18 employees running back and forth. And this wasn't grand opening. You know, this was a month after. Still line out the door around the corner. Very impressive. But the labor was also what struck me, you know? So yeah. I was like counting yeah. everybody and yeah. a, lot, a lot of people there. Um, But you know, that's what was needed to service all the customers. Hmm. So I'm like, we need a franchise dirty dough. I live in California. I will be your first franchisee. Get started on your paperwork. Not knowing that franchise paperwork takes forever. Not knowing <laughs> that you have to register in California. I was going to say, especially he's if like, you're in California. He's like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to find my spot. So I found my spot like within a month, negotiated the lease, everything. I'm like, hey, dude, am I ready to go? And he's like, I haven't even started anything. So anyways, <laughs> He goes, I'm, I'm burnt out. I'm actually thinking about selling the company. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, I was about to invest pretty much the same amount of money anyway in a franchise. I could just buy the company. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But um, one, I just listened to a podcast and, and it was to get true financial freedom to go from being rich to wealthy. It's businesses and real estate. And I had yep. maybe five yep. rental properties at the time. So I'm like, I'm in some real estate. I could have more. I need a business. But I'm not into businesses. I, you know, I have my solar business, but that's it. Let me, let me see if I can buy another business with the thought in mind of I'm a business owner with the full-time thing going out of state. I have no food experience. I have no franchising experience. If I can buy this company and make it work, there's a lot of people like me that have extra income that are running a business that don't want to do it full-time, but they know how to run a business yep. as long as it doesn't require you to be in there. So I'm like, okay, let's, Let's give it a go. So I bought it in January of 2021. So a year and a half ago. And and what what were you actually buying, right? Because when you connected with the guy, I mean, I think you said you went to high school with him, but when you guys kind of reconnected, when he made this post on Facebook, he was just doing delivery out of his house. He didn't have a storefront. Yeah. You gave him some money or invested some money to open the first storefront. So that was in Arizona. Did that mm -hmm. ever get, yeah. get up and running? Yeah, that opened up in March of 2020. So okay. when I had purchased it, it was just under a year old. Um, it had good sales. I mean, decent sales. It wasn't profitable though, but I looked at it and I'm like, well, it's because your labor, like, I, I don't know cookies, but I can tell you, you shouldn't have people sitting around all day. Uh -huh. um, anyways. And, and the big thing on the labor was you mix the dough, then you grab the, and then you put it in a bin. Then you have a, the baller. That's what we call them. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a ter terrible job, dude. You come in for five hours and you do nothing but weigh cookie dough. So you grab the oh. raw dough, you put it on a scale. Then you put little pieces of dough on it to, to weigh just right. Yeah, then you're yeah. going to grab it. You're going to roll it on the table, form it by hand, put it in the cooler, ready to be baked in a few days. And I was calculating it. And it's like, well, minimum wage is 12, 15 in Arizona. And they were doing 
like 40, um, it, it was taking like 45 minutes to an hour to do a batch of maybe 70 cookies. It's like, you oh, calculate wow. that out. It was over 5% of your gross costs. We're just going to balling the damn thing. And I'm like, well, well, we could get rid of that somehow. I don't know how yeah. we can figure that out. It's got to be a way. Other issue. But yeah, that's so. So when I purchased the company, it was, I was purchasing a single store. And then I was trying to figure out how to do a food, how to run a food company without food experience from out of state. I would visit it once a month. I would okay. fly in the morning, fly back the same evening. So I wouldn't even spend the night because I have kids, didn't want to leave my family. Yeah. Um, but I made it work like that. Just thinking I, maybe outside the box of like, I don't know how it's supposed to be done. I'll tell you how I want it to be done. It needs to be simple and easy because I'm an idiot and I need, I need myself to be able to run it. I'm, I'm curious about something because this, this is fascinating to me. Do you like looking back on it now? Do you feel like not having any prior experience in franchising or food actually served you well as you were, you know, addressing some of these issues, finding solutions for, for some of the challenges in the business? Do you feel like it actually oh, helped sure. you versus overthinking stuff that, that you may. Yeah, I, I had no preconceived notions of this yeah. is the way it's done. So it's like, yeah, I had a blank slate and nobody was going to tell me otherwise. Cause it's like, well, no, no, none of us know what we're doing. Right. Right. We're just, we're, we're, we're I'm, I'm winging it. Um, but I went in with a very analytical, like that, that's how mine works. My mind works. And it's just like process process, process. How do we figure this out? Mm -hmm. And then looking at other models, looking at a crumble model versus another company out of Utah is called chip that they didn't expand nearly as quick as crumble, but they were before crumble. They like mm. started the model. Um, and then looking at a Mrs. Fields model or a great American cookie, uh, insomnia, and just looking mm -hmm. at these models, what does, what's going good, what's not going well, and then kind of taking the, the, the best of each, each of those models. Yeah. Kind of a blend of, of all of them taking the, the best aspects of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's so, so you, you bought this one store with, were there like recipes or any, anything proprietary? I mean, you, you had the brand name. It, it sounds like it was already called dirty dough, which, which I love the name, by the way, like it definitely, it definitely stands out and, and kind of pops. It's something that people will, will easily remember. I feel like, but yeah. Um, but you bought it. What was, and it sounds like the plan was, Hey, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to franchise it. Yes. That's exactly what the plan was. Um, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to scale this? And, and anyways, how are we going to develop this model to ultimately franchise it? That's exactly what it was. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the, the franchise opportunity itself. Um, because you mentioned, you know, there's the, not the first cookie franchise, right? You've got crumble which we've already mentioned a few times you got chip i'm familiar with insomnia cookies um and, and there's a couple of other big names that have been around for a very long time um what are some of the key differences in the business model you mentioned one of the downsides to crumble was it is kind of designed to be this owner operator model meaning you are kind of buying yourself a job, at least at least for a period of time, right? The expectation right. is the franchise owners in the location every day kind of overseeing what's happening. Um, what, are, what are some of the big differences in, in how you've built the, the Dirty Dough model? Yeah, so I, I looked at who, who has the highest sales. Well, Crumble has the highest sales. Like in their last, okay. you can go look this up online. Yeah. Um, their FTD, it was if I'm remembering correctly, 1,687,000 gross. 
uh, average, for average between 115 stores. Pretty um, good. That's crazy, right? Yeah. And, and their highest was 3.6 <laughs> yeah. million. And Damn. even their lowest, their lowest out of 115 still did 734,000. It's like, yeah. wheat. they're doing something right, right? Like they're killing it. What are they doing? Well, they have great branding, great marketing, but they have these, that they took a normal cookie and they said, we're going to make this giant. Mm. We're going to make it crazy. And I'm going to give you new flavors every week. So you could come here every single week and get a new flavor, right? Mm. And it's not like Crumble invented that model. Other companies have done that, but they brought it to the cookies. Yep. Um, and I shouldn't even say they brought it. This other company, Chip, brought it. And then they they they, they, they stole it from Chip. Crum Crumble <laughs> ran with it. Yeah. Yeah. Crumble ran with it. So I'm like, well, we need that. And then you look at, well, our cookies are fad, right? We saw the cupcake fad. We saw mm -hmm. the frozen yogurt fad. And I know that me, me being a salesperson, like I build the company to how I, what would I want to buy? Right. Cause I'm going to sell to people who are like me. I'm going to sell how I want to be sold. Yeah. And I want to be sold based on logic and numbers and facts um, and trying to mitigate the risk as much as possible. So it's like, okay, well, how do I do that? Um, I'm not a big emotional seller at all. And it's like, well, Hey, cookies are so fun. And this, and like, I don't do that. So, well, there is a big opportunity. What's the objection to that? Well, is it a fad? Right. And how do you overcome that? Well, are cookies a fad? No, they're not a fad. Mrs. Field's been around for 40 years. Great American <laughs> cookies been around for 40 years. Is $1,687,000 average cookie sales a fad? I think absolutely. I think for sure. Yeah, so, right. Is that, is that volume sustainable? Can you do that for 40 years? I don't, I don't yeah. think you can. Yeah. Maybe you can. I don't think so though. So I knew I wanted that high sales potential that Crumble was doing, but how do you stay around for 40 years and have a good business model that creates generational wealth, right? That you're passing down to your kids. So like our, we'll get in this in a little bit later, but our CEO, Jill Summer Hayes, who I hired on in December, she grew her brand Maui Waui Smoothies and Coffee to just under 700 locations, but she ran it for 35 years. And she's like, I've had franchisees for 35 years. Yeah. Now I how, think she's at 39 years because she's still on, on the board, right? How, how cool founder. is that? So it's like, that's really cool. Like that makes a difference in somebody's life and, and again, generational wealth. So how do you do that? Well, what is Mrs. Fields doing? What is Insomnia Cookies doing to weather the 2008 recession, right? Small square footage, you know, small footprint under a thousand square feet, one or two employees, low waste. Well, how do you do all that? You centralize all your production. So you get large discounts on flour, sugar, butter, because you order directly from the supplier rather than through Cisco, Don Foods, whatever. Mm -hmm. You get a good discount there. Then you get another good discount when you go from buying a 50 pound sack of flour to buying a truckload. So you get two large discounts. Then you can mix hundreds of cookies at a time rather than 60 or 70. You have mm -hmm. a few highly experienced and trained bakers rather than teenagers that started last week. So your yeah. quality controls through the roof. Then you throw it through machine that portions everything exactly the same rather than you go to, you go to any of these cookie companies, buy a dozen cookies, go throw them on a scale. Every single one of the 12 cookies weighs different because it's like, you just, it's not going to be perfect if it's done by hand. Um, and so sometimes you buy a cookie that's four ounces. And sometimes you buy a cookie that eight, that's eight ounces. And that's a hundred percent difference. And this is a true story. Cause I've done it. Like I'm paying the same cookie and I'm getting double over here and half over here. Like as a business owner, how am I going to calculate my cost of goods? Right. You know, like, is it a four and, ounce cookie or is it an eight ounce cookie? Like, what are we doing? Well, that, and, and then it's like, 
you know, if it's being done manual to get it perfect, it's going to take more time. So your labor cost is going up. It may it may even your cost of goods out a little bit, but your your labor cost is going to be higher as a result if you're trying to do it manually and get it as as close to to perfect as you can. I've never analyzed cookies this way, but it but it all makes sense. Yeah. So it's just looking at those models and then it's like, okay, well, can I get a giant novelty item cookie like what these other newer cookie companies have done, but keep the back end process the same as the tried and true business models of Mrs. Fields insomnia cookies. Well, it all depended on finding a machine and we found it. And so, so now we have not only all of those advantages I just mentioned, lower cost of goods, higher quality control, lower labor, higher precision on the weight and the size of the cookie. Um, it also gave me, I mean, we, we have, what I've seen is the world's only three-layer cookie. So what is a three-layer cookie? You look at it and it's a brownie on the outside. And then on the inside, it's a chocolate chip cookie. And in the very center, you have caramel where you look at it and it's peanut butter dough on the outside. Then you break it open, there's chocolate dough in the middle. And in the very center, there's uh, like Reese's peanut butter or hot fudge. And it's like, these don't exist anywhere else. So while giving us all those oper- you know, those advantages, I could still make any cookie that Insomnia Cookie makes or Mrs. Fields or Crumble, right? I could put frosting on a cookie they can't come and make the cookies that we're, we're doing unless so, they start start fresh. So it gives us a more unique product yeah. while giving us all those other advantages, which wasn't the intent, but it just happened to be another benefit. Nice benefit. So, so that's all a result of this machinery that you found to streamline the process, but it also yeah. allows you to do these three-layer cookies. Because I imagine trying to do that manually would just be incredibly time-consuming or, or not even really feasible. Um, we were trying to differentiate ourselves from the other cookie brands out there. And I was in the store once and I heard an employee say dirty dough means the dough's dirty. I'm like, what is it? What do you mean by that? You know, and I asked the old owner, she's like, oh, no, I just thought it sounded catchy, but I'm like, we're going with that dirty dough means the dough's dirty. And this was very early on. So what does that mean? More mix-ins, more fillings, multi-layer cookies. Mm. So we were doing two layer cookies by hand. And the way you do that, you, 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 you weigh out a lemon dough ball, right? And then you weigh out a blueberry dough ball. Then you make the blueberry dough ball into a pancake. Then you put the lemon dough inside, then you wrap it. So Uh, now this was taking us over an hour to complete a batch of cookies. And and, and the the cost was so high. And then it's like, why we need more filling in there. How do you put more filling in a cookie? You, You flatten it out. Then you put the filling in there. Then you wrap it up. Well, if you put too much filling in there, it leaks out. Because when you flatten it out, it's not perfectly flattened, right? You're doing it by hand. So there's always like a, a thin point and that's where the cookie, that's where the filling is going to come out. And so anyways, it was just like, it was so hard. It took so much time. And then now the precision is just there exact every single time. But that's what we are like dirty dough. We focus on the inside and that leads into like the vision and the mission statement, which again, we can get into later if, if yeah. needed, but the messaging behind dirty dough is what's on the inside matters most. So you walk into our store. That's the first thing you see behind the cookies. What's on the inside that matters most on all of our packaging. It says proudly unique inside and out. We have a neon sign on the wall that says perfectly imperfect. And in spreading the message of you life doesn't need to be perfect for it to be enjoyed. And that's a personal message. That's, I guess that, I, that I've gone through, you know, being yeah. a, a high goal setter and a high achiever. It's like, I'm going to be happy when X, Y, Z, I'm going to yep. stop working weekends when X, Y, Z, and then you hit it. I sold my solar company and it's like, I was happy. 
but two weekends later, I'm still working the weekends. I'm like, what the hell? So anyways, yeah, I can relate. I can relate. And and I think most high performers can relate with that. And and so, yeah, I I think that's awesome how you you've tied it all together with that mission and that, that vision. And that's, you know, such a key part of your brand. And, and I want to talk more about that because I, I do know you guys are doing some pretty interesting things, you know, to, to help employees and, and around, you know, promoting uh, good mental health or, or access or, or, you know, help if, if someone is struggling with that. So I, I want to make sure we, we dive into that, but, you know, I, I want to highlight one thing you said, because it's, you know, owning franchises, working with a lot of franchise companies. I think this is got to be massively valuable for your, for your franchisees. The fact that you guys were able to centralize um, the, I don't know if you call it manufacturing or the production yep. of, of the cookies, right? In my opinion, in, in many franchise businesses, one of, if not the most important thing the franchisor can do to add value to their franchisees is to leverage the scale of the system to drop yep. their cost. Right. Uh, it's, you know, when I talk to candidates that I work with that are exploring franchises or considering franchise ownership, you know, especially early on, I, I get a lot of questions around, you know, Wes, why would I want to pay these fees up front? Why would I want to pay a percentage of my revenue back to the franchisor? you know, indefinitely. And my answer is, well, look, you may not, right? It, it depends on the franchise company and what they're doing to add value. You just look at it like a formula. It costs me X to become a franchisee. Great. What do I get in exchange for that? Is it worth it, right? It's going to cost me X percentage of my gross revenue paid back to the franchisor as a royalty. Great. What do I get in exchange for that? And if you can't clearly see that you're coming out better as the franchisee after your cost to be a franchisee, then maybe let's look a little harder. It is, does this franchise make sense? Right. But I don't know what your royalty rate is and and it doesn't really matter, but my guess is you're able to save your franchisees more on their cost of goods because the way you've centralized this than what their royalty is. And so that alone, not even taking into consideration any other aspects of the support the branding, the marketing, any of the other ways you're helping franchisees, that alone can at least justify the the ongoing expenses, right? Because yeah. they're they're coming out net better. So so that's huge. I love seeing when franchisors do that. So so how do you have this structured? Are the franchisees buying the product from you or mm-hmm. okay? So 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 we're the supplier for most everything. To do exactly what you said. And, and and why did we want to do it that way? Well, one, we're already delivering, right? We're already a logistics company and a production company. So if we're going to deliver to your store every week or every other week, what about packaging, right? We, we carry four packages, uh, a single, a four, a six, and a 12 count. If you buy, the most popular is a four. And it's like 90 cents if you buy 2,500 of them. It's like, well, freak, I don't want to pay 90 cents. And l- let's say you buy 2,500 of them. Well, now that's 10,000, right? 2,500 of each unit. Yeah. Or of each package. So that's 10,000. Where do you store 10,000? Yeah, it well, takes you, up space. You, you need to actually order 10,000 of each unit. So now you have 40,000 because once you go from 2,500 to 10,000, your price drops from 90 something cents to like 36 cents. So it's like for just a little bit more, I get four times the amount. Well, you have to buy that. So what do 
companies typically do well they rent a storage unit right yeah and then they're they're holding high amounts of inventory which is bad for cash flow and then they're sending an employee back and forth to get the the packaging and the liability there and the insurance and the mm -hmm. reimbursement of mileage and all of that crap well we can order 200,000 of these, right? And, and get low 30s now. And by the time it gets to you, you're still, you can order 1,000 from us, 1,500, 2,000 from us and still get that 34 cent pricing. So yeah. we do that in with packaging, with our toppings, our drizzles, our forks, our spoons, our cups, everything. It's all sent to the warehouse in large quantities. And then we deliver that with the same shipment that delivers their dough. So it's really been able to scale, uh, I mean, use the, use the scalability of the system to get discounts wherever we can. That way we can operate on 900 square feet and we don't have to have a storage unit. We only yeah. need one or two people to, to run it. Which is a, a game changer, you know, in a business like this, especially early in, right? I mean, and, and this is maybe another good thing to talk about in terms of just kind of comparing Dirty Dough to, to some of the other similar concepts. It is a small footprint that has a big impact on the initial investment amount for yep. a new franchisee, how much capital they need to actually get a dirty dough up, up and running. Um, and, and it has a huge impact on their, their overhead, their fixed costs, right? So the lower the fixed costs, the, the, uh, the less cash flow is needed to, to turn a profit every month. Right. So, and, and that's a big challenge with so many food franchises. Like I'll, I'll be the first to admit, and anyone that's listened to my podcast for, for a while now has probably heard me say, Personally, I'm not a huge fan of food franchises. Generally speaking, there are absolutely exceptions to that. And the more I learn about Dirty Dough, the more I, I believe that you guys are, are an exception to that. And it's for those exact reasons, right? Most, mm -hmm. most food franchise concepts require significant amounts of capital because you need a large facility you know, you may have to do some sort of an expensive build out or remodel. You've got to order expensive you know, kitchen equipment and things of that nature. So it just drives that cost to even get a location open way up. Mm -hmm. And then you've got crazy labor costs, wastage on, you know, your food and your products. And so it's just, you know, in a lot of cases, you're, you're operating on very thin margins on a per location basis. And so when you look at some of the really big food concepts out there, brands that we would all recognize, you don't really see people that own one or two locations. You see people, companies that have raised millions and millions of millions of dollars, and they've gone out and become very large multi-unit franchisees, 20, 50, 100 locations. When you get to that type of scale, then yeah, it can start making sense for a lot of the same reasons you just described what you're doing for, for Dirty Dough franchisees with centralizing, ordering and production and things like that. So you've set up Dirty Dough very, very differently from how the vast majority of food concepts, and I think from what I understand, even differently than, you know, some of the, the other cookie concepts. So elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, what are some of the, um, what, what, what does the investment range for, for Dirty Dough look like compared to, you know, what some people would view as competitors? Yeah. Um, these Utah stores are around 200, you know, franchise fee, build out equipment, signage, architect work, you know, maybe 225. One in St. George is going up and it's, it, it was an old, you know, is already built out uh, for a food spot. So that one's a little bit cheaper, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, it's going to depend on the area, but around that 200, 225 mark is what people are 
what these first five stores have opened up at. Um, so when you look at it compared to a crumble or compared to another food franchise, I mean, we're less than half. So yeah, you don't need all the equipment. You don't need the square footage. You're ongoing. So it, it's risk management, right? We're a new brand that makes us higher risk, but at the same time, your initial investment's much lower. Mm-hmm. Your ongoing costs are a lot lower, right? Your fixed costs, your lease payment, all of that, your labor is way less. I mean, we open this store with one person and then have a second person come in and it's like, wow. it, it, it's not that hard to find that, you know, a few people to run your store. So your labor costs and your overhead are a lot less. And then what a, you, you mentioned waste as well. Well, I had three areas of waste um, that I needed to resolve and it was my raw ingredient waste. So you need the weekly rotating flavor, but what do you do when you have a, a blueberry cookie and that blueberry cookie is no longer in rotation, right? What are the chances that you ordered exactly the, the right amount of blueberries? Well, that's right. almost nothing. So you have leftovers. That cookie may come back in three months. It may come back in six months. It may come back never. You have no idea as a franchisee. So what do you do with your blueberries? They're wasted. Mm. So that's completely eliminated, right? No raw ingredients means no waste. It also means a cleaner store. Second area is you have teenagers mixing your dough. And do they mix it? You know, did they time the mixer? Did they measure it out correctly? Did they pack the flour or level it off? Like all these things that I've, I've legitimately have never even made a batch of cookies still. Um, I love but, hearing that. But, but you mess it up. Cause it's like, I don't, I don't even know the answer to that. Do you, when you scoop flour, are you supposed to pack it? Or are you supposed to just, I mean, how do you get rid of the air bubbles without, but you also don't pack it. You look, I don't know, but the cookies come out and you mess it up and you throw away a batch at a time. And that's, high waste. Well, guess what? Completely eliminated in this model. There is nobody mixing. There is no mixers. You can't mess up a whole batch. The third area of waste is you throw away your cookies at the end of the night. So what can we do with our cookies? Well, let's just sell day old cookies for a discount. That was the thought. Well, no, that's going to hurt our revenue, right? Because let's, how about let's sell full price cookies. (laughs) So um, we already had a, a product that we put a cookie in a bowl, a warm cookie in a bowl with ice cream on top. And it's my favorite product pairs yeah. super well. Right. And then we already have yeah. like caramel and uh, hot fudge, like drizzles that we're putting on the cookie. So you just put on the ice cream. Um, and great product. Okay. Well, how can we reuse these old cookies mm. um, rather than selling them at a discount? Well, we already have ice cream. Let's throw it in the shake. We have eight cookies at a time, two flavors of ice cream. That's 16 shake flavors. And all I needed to buy is a $600 Vitamix blender that takes you know, one little uh, square foot on my counter. Now it's not a blender. It's one of those, like, imagine like a McFlurry machine or Dairy yeah. Queen uses them. It's like use a dispenser. A yes. So, so use a blender. It, it's going to pulverize your cookie. And I, most people like a chunky shake, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and then you have to pour the shake from your blender. Think Jamba juice into the cup that I'm going to, that the customer is going to eat out of. Well, what's left over on my blender product. That's mm-hmm. wasted. And then I have to clean the whole blender where this, I get a paper cup. You order shake Wes. I put the ice cream in the paper cup. I put the cookie in there, a day old cookie. And then I put a little bit of milk and then I mix it up inside of that cup. It keeps it chunky. And then I serve you that cup. Well, guess what? I don't have a blender to clean. There is no waste on the blender. Um, and it's very simple, very easy. So we added that it doesn't completely eliminate that third area of waste, but it greatly reduces it. So when you look overall low build out cost low lease payments, low labor, and very low waste. Well, what's your break-even point, right? On that model compared to a different food franchise model? Well, a lot less. 
a lot less. Uh, and, and then it's all about, okay, now how do we weather the recessions? That break-even point has to be very low. And that's what the goal has been. Let's bring that as low as possible. So we, we can be profitable um, if we don't have a million dollars in sales, if we don't have three quarters of a million dollars in sales, let's still be profitable at half a million in sales. Yeah, I love it because to your point earlier, right? I mean, will will these types of businesses be able to sustain seven figure plus annual revenues out of a single location? Hopefully, but you don't know that for sure, right? right. Um, so yeah, dropping that that break even point is critical. And it's also putting your your franchise owners in a position, I would think, to expand faster or more easily mm -hmm. through multiple locations. Because, I mean, from what it sounds like, they could go open at least two dirty doughs for about the same amount of capital as it would take them to open one crumble, if, if I and, heard and, you correctly. And probably have to labor, even, right. even with two of them. Right, which is... Which is huge, right? I mean, I work with hundreds of franchise companies. I introduce people to brands, you know, once I've kind of worked through a process with them to figure out what are they looking for in a franchise. And I can tell you, I mean, it's always been the case, but especially over the last year or so, you know, we're July 2022 right now. Over the last year, you, you hear a ton about labor costs being so high, it's impossible to find good people. So that's a big concern for most people if they're evaluating different franchise opportunities, right? Like I can't tell sure. you how often I hear Wes, like I want something that, that doesn't need a lot of employees, um, but also doesn't, you know, isn't going to require highly skilled, expensive labor mm -hmm. either. So this yeah. is, is like great for that. And there's, there's not a lot out there that checks that box. Yeah. Spe speaking of the skilled labor. So another advantage that we've had is going into this, seeing the potential growth because we've, looked at other companies and it's not like, let's get a concept and see if it works. And then let's see if it works with five stores. And then let's see if it works with 10 stores where the advisory board, the employees that we've hired, Jill, right. That I mentioned, um, they they've done this with, with tens of millions of dollars running the production facility or $50 million as our, you know, he had a logistics company that did 50 million last year. Now he's running our logistics after he sold that. And our, another advisor owns the largest, uh, property management, franchise, you know, so it's like, this is how do we get to a thousand store, stores? So you hire a chef and he, we read it. You, you asked about the recipes. Yeah. I bought some recipes. They were shit recipes. <laughs> like the reviewers were, weren't great. It was one recipe. Um, but the, that was the thing. It was like, man, they're still selling cookies. And like, this was one recipe online. And instead of chocolate chips, you put in Oreos, instead of Oreos, you put in something else. It was the same freaking cookie. Um, Lots of flour, low butter, big fat cookies, which I, because it had a unique shape. I'm like, I don't care about the shape. I need it to taste good. Anyways, we hire a, you know, a, a, a professional baker and chef. And we're, so these are frozen cookies. So he's okay. like, well, you, you got to take them out of the freezer and you have to slack them for 30 minutes. I was like, what slack? You mean like yeah. the messenger app? Like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about, dude. <laughs> Did you say um, slap or slack? <laughs> so I'm like, well, I, I can tell you that that's not going to work. He's like, well, that, that's going to make them taste better. I was like, okay, that the taste is very important. But does McDonald's have the best burger? Does Little Caesars have the best pizza? Does Taco Bell have the best Mexican or Panda have the best Chinese? No. Right. So no. we don't need the best cookie. We, we need a, a really good cookie, but we don't need a better cookie than like a crumble, right? Um, what we need is more scalable and replicable process. So 
Are your employees going to time when they're about to run out of cookies, grab cookies, time it for exactly 30 minutes, put it in the oven, wait for them to bake for 17 minutes, take them out, let them sit, and then serve them to the customer? Well, no, they're going to take them out and a rush is going to come and they're going to put them in at 10 minutes. And guess what? Those cookies are going to be undercooked or a rush is going to come in right as that 30 minute timer comes off. And now by the time you put them in, it's 60 minutes. And now they're way too thawed. And now they're going to be overcooked. So it's like, no, they're being baked from frozen. And he's also like, oh, well, we need to make some that don't go through the machine because of this or that. And it's like, well, no. And then you look at our reviews. We opened this store less than three weeks ago. Um, we have a 4.9. This was as of yesterday. So we had a 4.9 out of 134 reviews. 12 people mentioned Crumble and all 12 of them were five-star reviews. So it's like, we kind of still have the best of both worlds, but every yeah. cookie, the other thing I fought them off of is like, well, I need the cookies based on if it's a filling or this or that to have different cook times, different temperatures. And it was a no, that's not scalable. Right. So it doesn't matter what cookie you get on the oven. There's a little label and it says 285, right? That's what we cook them at. And it's for 17 minutes on low fan speed. That's it. Like, how do you mess that up? It's all across the board. Start. Yeah. So yeah. Could, could we go from a nine? I think we have a nine and a half cookie. Could we go from a nine and a half to a 10 if we made some adjustments? Yes. But is it going to ruin the whole model? Yes. Right. So it's, it's kind of like we need a damn good cookie, but it doesn't need to be perfect. The model needs to be perfect. And then the product needs to be really good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it makes great sense. And and I think you're smart to to look at it that way. And, you know, something you mentioned, you, you've mentioned numerous people on on your advisory counselor or your board of advisors that you've put together. And that's something I want to highlight too, because, you know, as you've already talked about, right, you, you don't come from a background in food. You don't come from a background in franchising. You've clearly thought about, it seems to me, everything you can think about and look at in this business, you've analyzed it, you've figured out, you know, where can we cut costs? Where can we maximize efficiencies? How, how can we optimize this and make it scalable, right? Make it trainable, repeatable, scalable. It's everything you're looking for in a good franchise. But it sounds to me like you were also smart enough to recognize the fact that, hey, I haven't actually done this before, right? I'm right. figuring it out. It's going pretty well so far, but I haven't done this before. So let me surround myself and bring some people onto my board that have done it before. And I just want to point out to the audience listening, that is so important. It's something that I always look for if I'm introduced or working with what I consider an emerging franchise brand, right? Because there are some phenomenal opportunities out there if you get in early, especially, right? I mean, think about the, the first Orange Theory, the first wave of Orange Theory franchisees, yeah. right? I mean, I know some people that were in the first wave of Massage Envy franchisees. You know, they sold years ago, but they, you know, got up to 12, 15 locations, got bought out by private equity. Like they're living good, right? But they took a risk on, at the time, a very emerging concept. So in a lot of people's eyes, emerging franchise brands are far more risky than a brand that's more established, more proven, more of a track record. The downside is with well-established brands, if it's a really good business, good luck finding availability, as you saw in yeah. Utah with, with Crumble, right? Um, so getting into an emerging brand can be amazing, but there are ways to, to minimize the risk if you want to do that. 
And so one of the things I always look for is what's the founder's background, right? And if they don't have a background in franchising, were they smart enough to surround themselves with people that do? And in mm-hmm. this case, you've done that. And, and, you know, not that you don't know this already, but that's a very smart move on your part, right? Because, you know, look, you've got 90 franchise licenses that you've sold already. You've got uh, one location that just opened, a few more opening up here soon. Your day-to-day is going to look very different a year from now when you've got 60, 70 franchise locations open than it probably does today, right? The level of support that you're going to have to provide to 200 franchisees is going to look very different than what it has to look like for six or seven franchisees. You know all these things already, but you haven't done them yet, but you've got people on your team in strategic positions that have the relevant experience. So they're going to help you navigate the pitfalls and and avoid in all likelihood making mistakes that that you would otherwise just because you haven't personally done it yet. So to the yep. listeners, that is huge. When I see that in an emerging brand, it takes my level of confidence up significantly on on that brand, right? Because a lot of a lot of companies franchise because the founder's been in the business for 15 or 20 years, they know the business inside and out. They've always kind of thought about it. So, hey, let's finally go ahead and franchise it. They don't know anything about franchising. They don't bring in help from, from experts that do know franchising. And, and they, they fizzle, you know, after selling a handful of franchises, right? So um, you've sounds like taking the, all the right steps to, to surround yourself with good people um, that, that are going to be able to help you in a huge way. Therefore, you know, helping these early adopter franchisees as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, th- this is the model, right? Did I develop this model? Yes. Did I really develop it? No. What, what I did and the, you know, the, the audience is business owners and entrepreneurs, right? Go tell your idea to a hundred people. And every time you tell it, you're going to get better at telling your story, mm-hmm. but more importantly, they're going to tell you how stupid your idea is, right? <laughs> if, they, if they're honest with you, my, my idea at first was we're going to sell these in five. Um, and the first one that you open up, it's going to be maybe 2000 square feet. And you're going to throw this balling machine inside your store. And then you then open up four other stores around that and you produce your own cookies and then deliver it to them. Then I mm-hmm. spoke with Jeff Fenster from the owner. Of, uh, he's the owner of Everbull. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's, that's, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> but so it's like, okay, did I find the balling machine? No, somebody else found it. Josh found that for us, you know? And it's like, I really, I just put the people together and then provoked the conversations and the thought, and then they're figuring it out because they have the experience, but it's go tell a hundred people. And every single time you tell it, you're going to get a different opinion. Usually they have more experience than you. If you're talking to the right people and you take that, then you go take that and go talk to somebody else with similar experience. And then they're either going to double down and validate it, or they're going to challenge it. And then you go to the third person and Anyway, that, that's, that's what I do. So it's just talking to as many people, telling my story as many times as I can, capturing ideas, then telling other people their ideas and seeing if it's validated or not. And then that's how the model has been developed. It wasn't, it wasn't really me developing it. It was me picking people's brains without picking their brain, just telling them what I'm doing and then them giving me advice. It's what the best CEOs and founders do right? They recognize that they can't do it all themselves. They can't come up with all the ideas. They certainly can't execute on, on all the ideas themselves. Right. So they, they surround themselves with good people. And um, 
you know, that's, in my opinion, it's the smartest way to do it. And, and my guess is that's got a lot to do with how quickly you've been able to, to ramp this thing up. So quickly tell us what, what type of franchise owners are you looking for? I, I think we've already made it clear that, you know, one of the differences between dirty dough and, and say a crumble is you don't need your owners to be owner operators, meaning they don't need to give up a, a full-time job or, or sacrifice time spent in other businesses they may own to, to transition full-time into working with dirty dough. Um, assuming that's, I, I captured that accurately beyond that. I mean, yeah. who, who are you looking for as, as your franchise owners? Yeah. So, so, so people that know how to run a business, because again, I don't know how to run a food business, but I know how to run a business mm-hmm. and I can, I, I ran the dirty dough location out of San Diego, or I guess the Tempe, Arizona location from San Diego, um, because I know how to run a business. I didn't need an, I, again, I still never made a batch of cookies, like mixed it, put flour in it. I don't know how to do that, but I did, I didn't need to do that. So it's, right. it's business owners that are looking that know how to manage a business and run a business. Now, if it's not a business owner, then we, and then they don't have business experience, then it's definitely preferred that they're running it themselves, right? They're getting there. They have to figure out how to run a business. At least for a period of time, right? It probably doesn't have to be forever, but if they don't have that experience, probably great for them to be more hands-on, at least for the first year or so. Yeah. It's just, it comes down to my personal belief is a business if a business doesn't make money without you working in it, then it's, then it's a, not a business. It's a job. Yeah. Yeah. And you own your job. So cool. But what, what you own, you own your own job that you work the hardest, you work the longest hours and you get paid last. So a business needs to be, and you have all the risk residual income and you have all the risk. So it's like, it just doesn't fit the model. So what dirty to what we're trying to do to serve the franchise owners, or potential franchise owners is lower that barrier to entry. So what's a first, uh, a perfect, you know, franchise, they have money, they have time to spend in the business and they have experience. Well, what we want to do is lower that. You don't have to have as much money, right? You can have less than half and then you can do it. You know, you can leverage an SBA loan on top of that. You don't need to have the, a ton of time because you have 10 people on payroll, right? I mean, how much time does that take compared to 80 people on payroll or compared to 50 people on payroll, right? A lot less time and inventory management and all of that, like a lot of that's mitigated, waste management, a lot of that's mitigated. So we're trying to lower that barrier entry and then the skill level. Well, do you, do you need to be a baker? Well, no, who cares if you're a baker? Even if you are a baker and you buy a franchise, guess what? You're never making a batch of cookies. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So we're trying to that's a perfect franchisee. And we're trying to lower the barrier to entry in all three stages. So we could open up the ability for more entrepreneurs to, to get into business and, and to create wealth and to create generational wealth that it's something that's passed down to kids, right? That you pass down this dirty dough store to your kids who are then going to passively run it as well and continue to provide income for them. I love that. Well, I can tell you one thing. My five-year-old daughter would be absolutely thrilled if we told her the next franchise we were opening was a yeah. <laughs> cookie franchise. Um, she's she's kind of at that age now where she, she sometimes thinks it's cool to like help, you know, in the business and stuff. So like if we give her something uh, to do, like she thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. If she gets to go up to our warehouse, like she thinks it's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure that'll, that'll uh, wear off a little bit as she actually gets to the age where she could really 
help us with some things. She'll probably think yeah. it's not cool and, and not want to be involved, but <laughs> I can guarantee you we'd, we'd be able to get her to, uh, you know, do some of that, that baller, uh, role. If, if we opened a dirty dough, um, at, yeah. at least for, for a while, um, we'd probably lose some inventory though, um, in the process, but, um, no, the, now, the cookies are fun for sure. Kids, kids love it. My kids love when I take them to the cookie store or when I show them the, the candy factory, cause that's basically what the, the, you know, the facility where all the cookies, you have all the Andy's mint chocolate and all the oh, Nutella yeah. in the world. And anyways and, and caramel and everything they're like this is so cool so oh i bet it's like going it's there. like a dream come true for for a kid um yeah. so look all that makes good sense to me right you're looking for business people that you know are, are looking for a good business opportunity I, I would imagine you're you're primarily looking for people especially in your larger markets that that eventually want to own and operate multiple locations um you know that's kind of part of the the vision for them um, and, it, and it sounds like from some of what I've heard, I've listened to a couple other podcasts you've done, and it sounds like you guys have attracted some pretty experienced franchise owners of other businesses and other other brands that are now Dirty Dough franchisees as well. Yeah, definitely everybody. And, and that was part of being the new brand and me not wanting to sell to somebody that's going to take a second mortgage on their home and put yeah. up all the risks. It's like, no, we, we, I know this. Is, I'm not going to tell you that this isn't risky, right? Like all businesses are risky and we're new. Now, again, we already went over like some of the risk mitigation, but at the end of the yeah. day, like that's the people that are buying these own uh, several other franchises or several other businesses and they're buying five. So you buy five, I mean, that's a million dollars. Nobody's been doing SBA loans so far. Like they're coming in with a million or $2 million and seeing this as a good model with a good team. Um, and, and, and that's who we've been selling to. Definitely people that are buying the five to 10 mark. Um, and developing that over, you know, two or three years. Yeah. So not to kind of, you know, I guess I am going to toot the, my own horn on here, but I, I do think we have the most simple food franchise model in existence. And I think people see that and that's what they're attracted to is of course, we're going to hit speed bumps. Of course, shit is going to hit the fan and we're going to make errors. Right. But how quickly can we recover with the team that we have in place and how do we mitigate that downside risk with all the fi fi fixed costs, waste and all that. So we've definitely been able to attract really good people. We haven't spent any money on marketing, any brokers, nothing like that. This is all organic word of mouth and uh, definitely have more inquiries right now than we can we can handle. I, I believe it, man. Um, it, it makes sense to me that, that you know, I mean, this is definitely the type of brand that has that potential to grow organically and, and you're not going to have to you know, spend money on, on marketing the franchise opportunity. And look, here's the other cool thing about, you know, you guys bringing in existing franchisees, whether they're, they're franchisees with other food brands, or, uh, I think I, I maybe heard this correctly. You got some orange theory fitness franchisees that have gotten involved or, or we're looking at it. But the point is you got experienced franchisees that are in your first wave of, mm -hmm. of franchisees that are opening they're going to be able to bring suggestions. They're going to be able to bring yep. ideas from their experience with their brands, right? Things that work well. And, and like we've already talked about, right? Like, you know, and, and I think you're probably not giving yourself enough credit with saying, hey, I didn't really come up with the model. You kind of pieced it together from what you've seen work with other businesses, but you're going to get more of that by having these other experienced yep. franchisees. Even if it's a totally different industry, they're still likely to be if it's a good brand that's got really good systems and processes and support 
there's plenty that that could translate to this business that you could learn from those franchisees. So in my opinion, it's one of the best it's one of the best approaches to to launching a newer concept is is if you can attract existing franchise owners because you're going to you're going to get some of that shared learning early on whereas if you've just got a bunch of first-time business owners uh not not necessarily a bad thing but they're not going to probably be in as good of a position to help the system get better um and, yeah. and learn and that was really thanks to uh i mean one of the first franchisees was going to be my buddy that i, I did solar with and he knocked doors in san diego made a million dollars personal sales. So if you make a million dollars to look at a 200, $250,000 $150, investment, it's like the same as maybe your average income looking at a $20,000 investment. So sure, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, I guess he was excited and he actually did own another franchise, but very passively. And, uh, you know, he's ready to wire us money. We're on closing and Jill's like, nope. <laughs> and I get, I wasn't on the closing call. And he's like, Jill told me, no, I was like, what? Um, you know, like, this is my, this is my buddy. Um, and she's just like, he's not gonna, he, he, he's not going to be the first franchisee that, that we want, you know, one of the first ones, like they need to be strong. So what we did is wow. we ended up allowing him in under a different group that runs like a hundred something, five guys. And so it's like, you invest with them, but they're going to be the franchisee. So we made it work for him, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't allow that. And she's been very picky with who we have because again, it's like, well, me, I just want the freaking franchise fee because this was back in December and it's like, we need more money. Right. Yeah. Uh, we're in a much different position now, but even in that position, Jill's like, well, you're going to kill the business. If you do yeah. that. like, who cares about the franchise fee? You need stellar franchisees because that's ride or die. Like the business writer rides and dies off of these first franchisees. We need these first 50 to kill it. And they need to be experienced. They need to have great markets, great territories. And we need to over support them um, to make sure that it's good for them and good for us. Yeah, it's such good advice. So Jill's the founder of Maui Wowie. Is that yeah, correct? And I hired her as CEO. So she right. she really is running the show. Um, and then we have two weekly calls, right? That she updates me on things and we kind of go back and forth. But in the day-to-day, -day, she does it all. I'm I'm not into the in the day-to-day -day of the business. Which which is a brilliant move, right? Because that I mean, the story you just told is a perfect example of of what you know, we talked about earlier, which is the value of having experienced franchise executives part of your team, because that's probably the biggest mistake that emerging franchise brands make is there. And understandably so they they want to sell those first locations, right? Because they need mm -hmm. the money. They don't have cash flow coming from royalty streams. And, you know, it sounds like you've got a revenue stream at the the production level, which is great. You don't have that, though, until franchisees get open. So you need those yep. first franchisees. You need those franchise fees, but you get the wrong people in. If they're not going to go crush it, good luck getting beyond, yeah. you know, a certain number of franchises. Because at some point, you're going to have franchises open. Candidates that are looking at your brand are going to validate with those franchise owners. And if they're not hearing good things, they're going to lose interest. Right. Yep. Um, so anyways, very, very good advice from from Jill and glad you were able to make it work for your your buddy. It sounds like that's probably going to be a, a better scenario for for everyone yep. involved. But um, look, I know we're we're coming up on time and, and I do want to give you a chance. Um, talk to me a little bit about and, and you already alluded to some of this, but there's there's a bigger kind of vision, a bigger kind of mission. It sounds like that you've got with Dirty Dough beyond just 
you know, creating awesome cookies and creating awesome business opportunities for your franchisees. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, I guess kind of what the 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 why for you is and and you know part of the mission with Dirty Dough. Cause from what I know, this is a big differentiator as well. Yeah. So there's kind of two backgrounds as to how I came that way. The the one that's a little bit more personal, I guess, was a year ago. Um, and we already were talking about this. I, I sold my solar company mm-hmm. on last June. And I, I consider myself a happy guy. And I think everybody considers me a happy, positive person. Um, but I've always was telling myself, like, I'm going to work extra for my family, right? For my family. So we can go on. It's like, I sold the solar company. I'd, I'd hit the goal that I wanted to achieve. Um, I had passive income. I had cash. I had all these these things going. And and then a week or so later, I was like, I'm still working. Like, yeah. Not that I I'm not going to retire, but it's like, why am I working more than 40 hours? So I realized there, and I started kind of doing some soul searching. Right. I, I started seeing a therapist, not because I had anxiety or depression, but because I wanted to see and figure out my psyche. Like, yeah. wh- why am I doing this? I tell myself I want to be with my family. I can be with my family right now. Yeah. Why am I still grinding so hard? Yeah. So, so that, you know, turned into like a lot of inner reflection. And then it's like, what is my purpose? What is my mission statement? What are my core values as a person, not as a company, but as a person. And my core, my my mission statement is to find joy and fulfillment. And then I tied it in with dirty dough, despite life's dirtiness and myself and others. So Mm. Let's, let's find fulfillment by focusing on things outside, you know, larger than us. And let's be happy along the way in ourselves and others. And then I threw in the despite life's dirtiness because it doesn't need to be perfect. Life doesn't never need to be. be perfect because it never will be. So if oh. we're chasing the, oh, I want a million dollars or I want $2 million, I want a million dollars in passive income, whatever it is, once you hit it, it's, you're not going to be more happy than what you already were. So that is uh, the, the mission statement of Dirty Dough and my personal mission statement, nothing to do with cookies, right? And then the other kind of backstory was listening to a podcast. Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist and he tracked the correlation between self-harm and suicide rates and social media. And statistically Mm -hmm. speaking, my daughters are twice as likely to go to the hospital because of self-harm than they were 10 years ago. What do you do as a dad? Especially with someone- terrifying. As a dad that's never experienced anxiety or depression. Like, what do you do? And then I had- a, a cousin, 12 years old, this is sixth grade, which is elementary here in Utah, suicide attempt, second person in that, uh, in that school that had a suicide attempt that same year. And I'm like, Shit. I didn't know what suicide was when I was 12. Like we're in a different world. Then my four-year-old daughter, she's five now. So a year ago, she starts watching a very good, clean YouTube, probably the best out there. It's called A for Adley. It's like one of the number one channels. And it's okay. a dad playing with his daughter, and there's just a camera following around really good content. But my daughter, Hey daddy, I want what Adley has. I, right. I want to go where Adley goes this and that. And it's like, she thinks it's real life. And a lot of it is, but it's not all of her life. Because it's curated. I can tell you that she's never, she's, she's never seen this little girl cry or fight with her brother or yell or any of that. Right. Yeah. Get put um, in timeout. Cause she, cause she so it's like, talked back or whatever. My, my daughter's already making these comparisons that we know is affecting people's mental health. I live a normal life, but I compare myself to Wes's perfect Instagram life. Yeah. My daughter at four years old was doing this. So it's like freak. So that's when going back to dirty dough means the dough's dirty. The inside matters most. The cookie is messy and imperfect, 
but you can enjoy it. And it's a good cookie. Life is messy and imperfect and you can enjoy it. Right. So it's not seeking perfection and then the happiness, but it's let's, let's be happy along the way. So that's kind of the, the, the mission and the, the story behind it. And what are we doing? We have the three customers that I have that I can serve. I already went over the first one. It's our franchisee mm-hmm. and it's lowering the barrier to entry to allow more people to own businesses with lower risk that can create generational wealth. The second is my employees and the employees of the franchisees. If we've sold 90 in seven months, is it feasible that we have a few hundred? Is it feasible that we have a thousand stores? I think so. If you have a thousand stores, that's you know tens of thousands of employees. Mm-hmm. And who is the who's affected by the mental health crisis? 16 to 22 year old females. Who works in a cookie store? 16 to 22 year old females. How could you have a better opportunity to, to make a difference. So we pay at a corporate level for a life guidance coaching system. Now, what I want to change, I tell people this all the time, dirty dough is all about mental health proactivity. And this is what I hear. Oh, my dad has anxiety. Oh, my wife suffers from depression. If I told you I was creating a, a fitness company, are you going to tell me that your, that your dad's fat and your wife has diabetes? No. Right. Why, why do you go to, you hear mental health and you, and you think mental health illness. Mm-hmm. Why? Everything is reactive in this space. Everything. Yeah. If, if you go to, and I've, I've traveled to dozens of countries, you go to these third world countries and you see people that are happy. I've, I've, I lived in Mexico for a few years. My wife's from Mexico as well. Um, and then you see really rich people that commit miserable. suicide yeah. you know, and, and they're miserable. And it's just like, okay, happiness is probably a choice then. How are we going to choose to be happy other than your mindset. And what is your mindset? What's another word for mindset? Your mental freaking health. Yeah. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's working on it. So it's all about being proactive. So this program allows unlimited calls for all employees, both ours and for and franchisees funded at a corporate level to be able to call a life guide that's been through a similar situation. So it can be anxiety, depression, uh, cancer, death in the family, whatever, being a minority, but it can also be reaching peak performance. What is my purpose in life? Goal setting quality sleep, um, happiness mindset, letting mm-hmm. go of the past, all these things that need to be proactive that aren't. So that's my second wow. level of people that I can affect. And that's how I'm trying to change their life. And, and that's going to be dependent on the culture. Cause who cares if we pay for the service, unless there's a culture of like, Hey, what are you working on this month manager or employee? Like, Oh, I'm working on my, you know, getting better sleep. I'm working on losing weight. With yeah. My life coach. No doubt that um, that culture has got to be a lot of the culture. Yeah, it's got to be intentionally curated, you know, between you, the franchisees, and then they've got to bring that culture to their to their local markets and and their local locations. But man, that's a that's a powerful mission. Like I've my oldest is five, and I have a four month old daughter too. Yeah, and it's one of the things that scares me the most is is you know thinking about them and and my daughter's the same man like she's you know gotten into watching some stuff on YouTube and we're very careful about what we let her watch but yeah that comparing to other people mm-hmm. is already starting and it's like man she don't have a phone she don't have a tablet she don't have social media yet but it won't be that much longer until she comes asking for it right because her friends have yep. it and stuff like that so yeah how do you how do you, at least, you know, having young daughters, how do you help them start training their mindset now so that they don't succumb to some of the, 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 the pitfalls that every kid, but especially yeah. girls are going to go through with social media and trying to compare themselves to, to others where they're only seeing what 
what someone wants you to see. They're not seeing real life. Um, so anyways, I, I think the mental, mental health, it, it does have a huge stigma around it. There's a, you may be familiar with them. There's a really cool franchise brand I've been working with for the last year or so called Ellie mental health. They're based out of Minnesota, uh, founded by therapists that worked in all the traditional settings you know, for mental health before, saw everything that was kind of broken in the system, saw how intimidating and how limiting it was for people to actually get help for mental health. And so everything you just said, trying to destigmatize it, give people more access to it, make it less intimidating, more inviting, more comfortable, more proactive. Um, and they're, you know, doing doing great with, you know, selling franchises all over the country. Um, so it's it's good to see companies like yours, you know, being proactive, helping their employees and, and their franchisees, you know, with with those types of issues, because, you know, I, I think that I've been reading and listening a lot recently to just, you know, how technology's blown up over the last, you know, 20, 25 years and how dramatically yep. different our lives are now. And it's like, if we're not proactive about adjusting and, and kind of protecting ourselves from getting sucked into to so much of the noise that's out there. I mean, that's a slippery slope because it can really, yep. it can take over your life in, in a lot of different ways if, if you let it. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads right into that. Like the, the, what do you, what do you do for these, these kids and how do you start that? That's the third customer is just the general population. Okay. And a lot of it is the messaging. You buy a box of dirty dough, it says proudly unique inside and out on all of them. Right. And, and I kind of already went over some of the messaging and like, it, you know, we have some billboards up right now, but also when you walk into the store, it says in touch with our feelings, but F I L L I N G, you know, kind of yeah. some fun wordplay, yeah. but what are we actually doing to make a difference on, on that level? We're, we're going to build, be building wellness centers. So Wes, you, you buy a franchise, you'll get a call, call from us. So we have a, we're forming the nonprofit right now, but we call a school and say, Hey, do you have an old classroom that you can convert to a wellness center? And it's going to take one person to to run it, you know, long-term we will fund it. We'll provide the program and everything to get it set up. And then if it's a yes, then corporate, we put up some money. We ask the local franchisee and say, Hey, the high school that you went to, or the elementary school that's down the street from your franchise, we want to raise some, we want to do one of these wellness centers and we'll put up some money. You put up some money. We'll do a community night that all of the parents from the school go there. And then we also do an Amazon wish list. So we're wait, raising the money through you know, that some of the money through the parents and they can actually buy the paintings on the wall and all that stuff. So these mental, I mean, these, uh, wellness centers, it's all about proactivity in the mental health space. So they could come grab a tablet and educate themselves on the, how do you get through anxiety, right? How do you not worry about things in the future? How do you be present? How do you let go of the past? How do you change your physiological state through breathing? Right? So a lot of that is what we're trying to do with the goal of building at least one wellness center per franchise. So with a thousand stores, that's all, awesome. you know, that's hundreds of hundreds of people that we could potentially hundreds of franchisees that we can provide general generational wealth to tens of thousands of employees that we can positively impact their life. And then hundreds of thousands to millions of end consumers that we're educating through these wellness centers. That's so cool, man. I love it. I think, you know, one of the biggest things my wife and I've learned owning the businesses that we own is because I, I mean, if I'm being honest, it, it wasn't why we got into business for ourselves initially, but it's one of the the most gratifying 
things that we've we've gotten as a result of owning businesses. One is just you know creating good job opportunities for people that want to work hard and, and make a good living, um, and helping them you know better themselves and create more opportunities for themselves long term. But the other is just finding good ways to get involved in the community and help, right? With with no expectation whatsoever for you know getting anything in return for it. That's something that we've really gotten passionate about. Um, so I love hearing, you know, at, at the franchisor level, you know, you, you rolling out initiatives like this because, you know, look, you get people that are buying into Dirty Dough. They're hearing about this from you well before they sign a franchise agreement or commit, right? So you're bringing in like-minded people, right? Like chances are right. if they're buying into Dirty Dough, yeah, they like the business. They feel like it's a good business opportunity, but when people buy franchises, man, there's there's emotion involved in in that decision too. Right. There's got to be a cultural connection. They've got to feel like it's a fit in that regard. And so, you know, it's it's just uh, amazing to think about as you get all these franchise locations open and the wellness centers, how much good that's going to do for people. But um, yeah, I mean, man, our, our, the, the the mission statement is finding joy and fulfillment. Right, nothing to do with cookies. Why did we do cookies? Because cookies are are profitable and it, mm. and it's replicable and scalable. But the mission has nothing to do with that. It's how do you make your how do you find joy yourself and fulfillment and then help as many people as possible to do that. And I mean, study and study and study proves it's it's working on something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Like that that's what it is. Yes, we want income. Yes, we want more money. But why? So we could be happier, right? And have better relationships and have free time so we can be happier. It all comes back down to, we want to feel good about ourselves. Well, what, what if you can circumvent all of that? You know, you don't need to be a millionaire and a multimillionaire to have all that. What, what if you can just have it by focusing your time on what matters? So, and then it does definitely allows us to get the, the right franchisees, the right employees, and it creates people that are passionate about a cause and not money, which is aligns with my beliefs. And that's the people that I want to grow with. I love it, man. That's beautiful. Uh, dude, I could talk to you about this stuff for hours, but I know you've got something else coming up here in a couple of minutes. So we will go ahead and wrap this up. But, um, you know, first, let me say very impressive what, what you guys have built so far. Um, I'm going to be watching closely. Can't wait to see uh, Dirty Dough continue to be successful. And uh, so just keep doing what you're doing, man. Um, it's It's inspiring. That's for sure. Tell us where people can learn more about Dirty Dough, connect with you. If they want to check out the franchise opportunity, how can they do that? Uh, give us some places to connect and we'll post all that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, DirtyDoughCookies.com is our web uh, is our website. You can inquire about franchising or you can go to my personal website, BennettMaxwell.com, B-E-N-N-E-T-T-M-A-X-W-E-L. And then there you can inquire about franchising, but also connect with me on social media. I try to put out good content daily on what's going well, what's, what's not going well. Um, really trying to add value where, where I can on the social media platforms as well. I love it. And are you, are you doing a podcast? It's, it's in the, it's, it's in, the in my mind. Okay. All right. No, I, have, I, have a, I have a coach and he's like, you got to do a, a podcast. So when I, when I start it, I'm probably four more months out. I'm going to, I'm okay. going to have to hit you up Wes. When, when you, when you roll out the podcast, let me know, we'll have you come back on. You can give us an update of uh, where Dirty Doe's at then. And uh, we'll try to get some, some ears on the podcast. 
Cool. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Bennett, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate you dropping in here on the Path to Freedom podcast. Keep up the great work and uh, really appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know when a new episode is released. You can also check me out on my website at www.path2frdm.com. And if you want more information about franchising or just want to say hello, feel free to contact me at Wes at Path2FRDM.com. Thanks again. Now go drop in.